0: Our passage today is about a message of good news. Now, it isn't a personal message like hearing, congratulations, it's a boy. But rather, it's about a message that is addressed to a nation. It is a powerful message that panders to the hopes of an entire nation. And it's meant to be something that's weighty because it changes the future of an entire people. Now, I remember one time when our nation was waiting with bated breath for good news. It was during the last general election. The winds of change were blowing and people were really, really invested in the results and there was strong sentiments of hopefulness, expectations of a change of government, a hope of better Malaysia. And at the same time, there was also fear that there will be cheating in the elections or perhaps the transition of power may turn out to be difficult. Uh, and people were literally biting their nails in suspense as the results were coming in. I remember staying up all night to find out what the results of the election was. And I'm sure many of you did. And then finally, early in the morning, the news broke that Tun Mahade is officially the Prime Minister, and Pakatan Harappan is forming the government. The nation cheered. I finally get to go back to sleep. Now, we can of course argue about did things actually change? Was it really good news? And there'd be pros and cons, whichever view you hold to. And that isn't the point of the illustration. Now the main point I'm trying to show is that if you can remember that energy, the expectation the people had when they were hopeful for change, if you can remember how caught up people were in that moment, the catharsis that came when people broke into tears when they heard the news, then, you can begin to understand the weight behind Mark's first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now the word gospel, euangelion in the Greek, means good news. And this is a proclamation by the author of a good news that is being relayed to the people of Israel. Now. The people of Israel, they've been waiting for a very, very long time for change, for restoration in line with the promises that God has given them in the Old Testament. And you see, the last they heard about the promise of good news was during the time of the prophet Malachi. Now, the book of Malachi was the last book in the chronology of the Old Testament. In Malachi, the people were promised that the day of the Lord will come. God himself will come down to dwell in his temple. God will be with his people. A great restoration will come. And after that mighty declaration, silence. 400 years of silence. No prophets, no new revelations from God. And then, after 400 years, the silence was broken, and suddenly Mark proclaims here the good news so you can see how big this is but what is this good news? why is it good news? well the text tells us that it is the good news of Jesus Christ the son of God now as most of you are aware by now the Christ in Jesus Christ is not his surname he isn't the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ it's his title the title Christ in the Hebrew language Messiah simply means the anointed one. And what it means is the Christ is God's chosen king through whom God brings about salvation of his people. So we see a Christ in David as he saves the people of Israel. In fact, we even see a Christ in Cyrus, the first Persian emperor who enabled the exiled Israelites to come back to Jerusalem. However, in this case, Jesus is identified as the son of God which heightens this to not just a messiah Jesus is the messiah a person who is familiar with the old testament would immediately look at the promises God made to king David about a king who comes to eternally rule from the line of David and this king would be like a son to God or you'd be reminded of Psalm 2 for example where you see this sonship of God expressed in this picture of ultimate kingship and dominion over all things and we will see here in Mark's proclamation that what he is trying to do here is he's trying to take all of the old testament scripture and he's making a declaration this has been fulfilled here is the good news so Mark is saying hear the good news Jesus who is God's promised eternal King is here to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament now for some of us there might be some here who actually may not have heard of this good news may not have understood it rightly and this passage is telling us that the coming of Jesus is really good news and the way that we know it's good news is actually to go back to the Old Testament and see actually what did God promise the people? So if you are someone here who don't know this good news, can I invite you? Come and study these promises of God. Come and see how Jesus truly fulfills these promises. Join a growth group or after service, sit down with someone and just tell them, hey, you, sit down, teach me about this. I want to know. Right? Right? And friends, when you realise how Jesus is the only solution to the problems of the world, the only solution to the problem of sin and death, then I hope that to you, the coming of Jesus is indeed good news. I hope that you will rejoice together with the rest of us and place your trust in Jesus. So for you, this proclamation of Mark, is especially meant to challenge you. It's asking you to determine the truth of these words. Is the coming of Jesus Christ good news? So will you look it up? Will you listen to what Mark has to say? I hope you do. Now for those of us who are Christians, now we know that the coming of Jesus is good news, but I wonder if we have really been thinking of Jesus as good news. Or is Jesus just something you do? It's what my family does, it's my culture. And is Jesus truly good news that you believe to affect the entire world? Because if it is, then you should not be embarrassed to proclaim it to people. We should not be afraid of offending people, we should be people who share the gospel. Now, if that is the greatest good news that we can hear, all of the Old Testament fulfilled, we wouldn't want anyone to miss out on hearing it. And also, our response to the good news actually shows if we really believe that it is good news. The Christ has come. God's promises are fulfilled in Him. So do we trust in that promise of eternal life in God's present, or are we more keen to invest in our current lives now? So have a look at your career, your finances, what things brings you joy and satisfaction, and then ask yourself the question, in light of the good news of Christ, what do these things reveal about me? Should there be something that I change? Moving on from there, as we continue to look at the passage, Mark then justifies that this is really the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies by pointing to verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, if you notice, there's a little footnote in your Bible associated with this verse, and you'll find that it says, some manuscripts say, as it is written in the prophets, instead of mentioning Isaiah. So the questions we need to ask is, did Mark make a mistake? Now, if you come up to verse 3, you will find a quote. And Mark attributes this quote to Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. See, behold, I send my messenger is actually not from Isaiah. It's from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And the next part, however, which talks about the voice of one crying in the wilderness, demanding that the way of the Lord be prepared. That is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So, if you have a look at the different scrolls and what they say, you'll find that the newer scrolls say, as it is written in the prophets. And the older scroll says, as written in Isaiah. So, perhaps what happened was, a scribe realized, hey, Mark is quoting Malachi and he puts there Isaiah. Let me help Mark out so that he doesn't get embarrassed. And then this was copied on by other scribes in the later <laughs> text and that would explain why there's this little footnote. But we should be looking back at the older manuscripts to try to figure out actually what did Mark actually say? Not what the scribe thought he should be saying. And based on that, we see that Mark is saying that it's Isaiah. So your ESP Bibles captures this accurately. Now, this kind of things, rather than make you worry about the accuracy of your translation, is actually helps you to put your trust in the translations because the translators can confidently acknowledge that there are some parts in the Bible you need to zoom in and look very carefully. But at the same time, they have enough evidence to show us, look, this is why we put this in. Right? So, knowing that Mark meant what he wrote, then leads us to another question. Why would Mark point to Isaiah when clearly he's quoting from both Malachi and Isaiah? Why not just say the prophets instead of Isaiah? Did Mark, despite being inspired by the Holy Spirit, still manage to get things wrong? Well, I don't think so. Now, one very reasonable explanation for this is that the scroll that contains the later prophets and the minor prophets were all bound out in one big scroll. So as you open the scroll to read from the minor prophets and the later prophets, the first thing that you will open, the header of the scroll, would be Isaiah. Therefore, what Mark could have meant was that he's actually referring to the scroll. And that's the header And so, his reference is then a shorthand referring to all the prophets and their prediction in that scroll. Now, I don't think that's a bad explanation. In fact, I would push it a bit more further. I think Mark was intentional in mentioning Isaiah. And he puts in this quote from Malachi as well, because he intentionally wants to point to us how all the prophets actually point back to the prophecies in Isaiah. Now, if we understand our scripture in light of Christ, we can see that all scripture is written by man, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that means all the authors are actually unified in the revelation that they give. So what Isaiah has prophesied and what Malachi has prophesied is actually coming from the same source. And note, Isaiah is the first of the later prophets. He's the first in the scroll. And Malachi, chronologically, is the last of the minor prophets. So, by taking Isaiah and Malachi together, he's kind of showing you how, look, from the beginning, throughout this stretch of time and all these prophecies, at the very end, you still see one unified message. See, Mark is not a foolish person. He knows the Old Testament scripture. So, he is deliberately mentioning Isaiah instead of just saying all the prophets. Because he also wants you to consider what what we know of the things that Isaiah says. So if if that's the case then, when Mark is pointing us to Isaiah, he's not just doing it to take one particular quote and put it there. He's actually kind of inviting us to read this gospel in light of the book of Isaiah. So we have to understand this proclamation, this good news, in light of what we see in Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah, it can be divided into two main parts. The first 39 chapters is all judgment gloom. right? Israel is going to be judged. And then you come to chapter 40, and immediately you see a reversal of the judgment. And as you continue to read up to the end of Isaiah you start to see hints of how God is going to bring about this reversal how God is going to bless his people how God is going to solve the problem of sin how God is going to rule over his people and so on so if we flip back to Isaiah which should be about page 700-ish in your Bibles right and you look at Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1 you will see comfort comfort my people says your God And immediately, after all the judgment Message of comfort to the Israelites So, what they are hearing in Mark The good news Is actually that message of comfort That was prophesied in Isaiah And this is the fulfillment of that And then in verse 2 of isaiah 40 we see that israel's warfare is ended their sins are forgiven verse 3 that's where the verse that mark quotes from the voice cries out prepare a way for the lord the people are making ready for god to come verse 5 the glory of the lord is being revealed as he comes for his people and all flesh shall witness the coming of god can you see how this is directly relevant to the message of the good news that Mark has been proclaiming. Jesus Christ has come. You can see him in the flesh. He has come to save his people. So, the listeners at that time who knew the Old Testament will immediately link these two things together. The comfort that is promised is finally here. That God is going to accept us now, God is going to forgive our sins. And then, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which Mark quotes from, you see a similar picture, right? In Malachi chapter 3, the messenger comes to prepare the way, and God himself will come to the temple to dwell with his people. And the people will be comforted as the sun of righteousness rises over them. So we see then the link between the prophetic expectation for the comfort of Israel and the quote that Mark is using. And we see that Mark is telling us therefore in chapter 1 that the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. It's the fulfillment of all the promises of scripture. It is a message of great hope and rejoicing. Even though you don't see that language used in Mark, just by quoting, he's bringing in all that weight into this passage. So you can only fully grasp it If you have Isaiah in your mind So what Mark is doing is very subtly pointing people to their hope Now, another thing to note is that both Isaiah and Malachi Has the coming of the Lord prefaced by a messenger And this messenger comes to prepare the the way What does Mark do when he's writing? You go to the second part, verses 4 to 8 And we see this messenger, John the Baptist and he comes baptizing people, preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we see that what John is doing here is that he's leading the hearts of the people back to God. He is preparing the people to respond rightly to God when God comes to gather his people. And friends, that's actually what happens in Isaiah 40 that differentiates the earlier 39 chapters of Isaiah. The people in Isaiah 40 Are those who have Been through the judgment And they are people who are longing For God And it is to them that God speaks this message Of comfort, of salvation And we see that John Is doing exactly that He's preparing the hearts of these people Who have not heard from God for 400 years And he's preparing them to long For God, to seek God And And That is how the way of the Lord is made ready Not through rituals but through pointing people back to God And interestingly John himself knows of the symbolic nature of the baptisms that was performed with water because in verse 8 John says that he has baptised with water but someone greater comes to baptise with the Spirit Now this isn't Mark's focus but it does teach us a little about thinking through water baptism, right? Uh, But before we get to that, let me share a joke. I'm telling you this beforehand that it's a joke, so you can laugh at it even if it's not funny. (laughs) Right, so Bob, an alcoholic, he goes to church to find a solution for his drinking problem. The pastor, after listening to him and having a long talk with him, then asks, are you baptized, Bob? Bob says, no. Well then, Bob. I'll give you the holy baptism and you'll be a new man. Pastor grabbed Bob, plunged him in the water and says, You are now a new creature. There will be no more alcohol in your life. You're not Bob anymore. You're Joseph instead, a new, clean and healthy man. Now, Joseph found the method odd, but he really liked the experience and he appreciated the metaphors that was used so joseph went home he went directly to the fridge took out a bottle of whiskey dipped it in the water saying you are now a new creation you are not whiskey anymore you are orange juice <laughs> now friends the joke illustrates for us the ridiculousness of looking at rituals and thinking that that's what changes nature of something so in understanding that We can see that actually baptism isn't just about the ceremony, right? Rather, it's about the heart's response of rejecting sins. That's what John is calling for. And then as you reject the sins, you're making a U-turn. You're starting over again, saying this time I'm going to do it right. Ultimately, it's about coming to God humbly, acknowledging your sins, rejecting your sins and seeking to do the right thing. Now if you read your Old Testament carefully, this is exactly what God wants His people to be like. It's not the blood of bulls and goats that God desires, but the penitent heart of His people. However, there is still one problem that we can pick up. You see, if baptism is about making a U-turn, coming back to God and doing things right again, then we must realize that eventually we'll still fail Eventually, we will sin, because that's our nature. And what do we do then? Get baptized again? The human heart is just not up to par with the standard that God has set, because we are by nature sinful. So what kind of hope can we have in that baptism of water alone? And John hints the answer to the readers in verse 8 already. John's baptism is that of water. It's symbolic. It's not perfect. But there is one coming, Jesus Christ. And He will baptize with the Spirit. And He will bring about true salvation. It is a salvation that water baptism points to. But without what Jesus Christ does, this would be empty and meaningless. We don't see Mark explaining this here in detail. But we know then, Jesus is going to do something. That he's going to bring about this true salvation that leads to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And spoiler alert, he's talking about the completed works of Jesus at the cross. The works that justifies every believer, past, present, future, who have turned to God to seek salvation. Now, when we see the description of John in Mark's Gospel, you'll notice how careful he is to mention things about him. The camel hair clothing, the leather belt, his peculiar diet of locusts and honey. Now, granted, he is a bit of a celebrity. We see all Jerusalem and Judea come to see him. He's very popular, but Mark wasn't just being a tabloid reporter here. He actually mentions these things for a purpose. And, see, if you're like Mark, and you know your Old Testament well, you will know that the book of Malachi, the very last verses, the very last promise that God makes before He goes silent for 400 years, is that God is going to send a messenger before He brings a salvation, and He identifies this messenger as the prophet Elijah, who comes to restore the hearts of the people. Now of course John the Baptist is not Elijah reincarnated, there's no reincarnation in Christian theology. He isn't Elijah come down from heaven because we actually see Elijah later in the Transfiguration but rather, John the Baptist is the person who embodies the spirit of what it means to be Elijah and that's what Mark is emphasizing the similarities between how Elijah is described in the Old Testament and how John looks like the similarities in the way they dress, the way they live and most importantly The same call for the nation to repent and trust in God. John turned the hearts of the people back to God. And that signifies that Malachi is fulfilled in John the baptised. Now as we look at all of these things, as we see that Malachi's promise are fulfilled in this description of what John is doing. Then we realize that, hey, that means Jesus is the one who is promised. He is the one who comes to redeem all things. And for us then, as we come to understand these things, then as we think through things like baptism, we'll see that, yeah, baptism is a picture of God's salvation to Jesus. It is a good thing to do. We want to remember however that baptism is not about the rituals itself, it's not about the process, it's about a heart that repents and turns to God, a heart that longs to be God's people. So let us be people who hold to that ideal of repentance, of coming to God. And in all things that we do, don't try to just look for Christiany things to do to give you assurance, it's about the heart. And another thing you can learn from John. It's actually his attitude. If you look at verse 7, he says he is not even worthy of untying Jesus' sandals. You see, it's the slave's job to untie the master's sandal. And here John is actually implying that even he, the greatest of the prophet, the one who introduced the Savior, he's saying he's less worthy than a slave when it comes to serving Jesus. And deep inside, we all have some measure of pride in the ministries that we do. Because that becomes our accomplishment, and because of that, we tend to think that we are something. But I tell you, friends, that's the wrong way to go about ministry. Be humble and realize there is none worthy to serve God, not one. So if you want to test it out, just reflect on how you feel when someone criticizes your ministry and they'll tell you if there's something for you to work on. Moving on then, we come to verse 9 to 13, the last leg. And firstly here, we see Jesus being baptized. Now, Mark doesn't explain much here, but we know from the other gospel that it's not because Jesus sinned and he needed forgiveness, but Jesus does it in order to identify with us. And it's an important idea to remember, and we'll get back to it later. But you'll also notice, That in verse 10, you see the Trinity. You see the Father speaking from heaven. You see the Son standing in the water. The Son who is the Word of God. And then above the water, floating, is the Spirit. And this is actually a picture of creation, of Genesis 1. Because we see that in Genesis 1, don't we? God having a purpose... Desiring to create, he speaks the word. And the spirit is hovering over the waters. So it's kind of an Old Testament imagery that Mark is conveying to kind of hit that button to kind of tell you, look, this is a new creation. It's a reset button. It's starting all over again. And so it tells us that in this picture of the baptism is the beginning of a new creation where God is going to fix all the things that has gone wrong because of sin. It's the reset button. And then you hear God speaking to Jesus. Verse 11, You are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. And then God puts his spirit on him. And of course, if you know your Old Testament scripture, you'll go to Isaiah 42 verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights I put my spirit upon him He will bring forth justice to the nation And this is the beloved Whom God is pleased with And if you've followed Isaiah You'll see this is the servant figure that we see there And then at the same time He's also called God's son Which is an allusion to the Davidic kingship And so the implication of this one simple sentence If you see it from the lens of Isaiah of the Old Testament then you will see Jesus is God's King and He is the suffering servant of Isaiah who does all things when? Well, this is the one who is prophesized This is the one that Isaiah 53 speaks about the one who comes to be pierced for our transgression crushed for our iniquities the one who comes to bear our sins And more than that, this servant king is coming with a purpose to bring justice to the nations. He is the one that brings order and peace. And so if we understand the full import of it, if you're not just reading Mark, but you're pulling in all the Old Testament references, then you can understand why this is really, really good news indeed. This is the full, the perfect restoration that God has promised. Not just to Israel, but actually to the entire world. The promised king is here. And with that then, we come to the final part. Mark shows Jesus going to the desert where he is tempted and he comes out of it successfully. And that shows us that he is the faithful servant that pleases God. And more than that, just like how his baptism is a reenactment of the account of creation in Genesis 1 his entry into the desert also has Old Testament echoes it's a picture then of how Israel went into the desert, in the book of Exodus they went in for 40 years to be tested, now Mark doesn't tell us, but if you read Luke, he says say that Jesus was there for 40 days right, so 40 years, 40 days it's a device to show us how jesus is taking up the mantle of israel and he's showing us where israel failed in that desert jesus succeeds so the readers who read this then will see jesus as the true israel he is the one that succeeds not the nation and that will have implications now remember We said that baptism still doesn't solve the problem. We still sin. We are not perfect. But Jesus, by his act of perfect obedience, he shows that he is the one that does all things and he is baptized to identify with us. So he is then our representative. So we have here the one who represents us. He's like the one that takes your IC, pretends to be you, and takes the exam, right? And he is, I hope no one did that, (laughs) and he is able to do the right thing when the entire nation of Israel has failed. So that will help us to see, oh, that's why Mark is telling us Jesus was baptized. That's why Mark is telling us Jesus went to the desert, so that we can relate to him as our representative. He does all that we need to do that we fail to do. So, in a sense then, Jesus is portrayed here as the head, the leader, the king who represents his people. And this is actually a good reminder for us. When we have our failures, when we sin and we struggle to do right, we tend to go to despair. We feel bad about ourselves. And a little bit of that is good, we don't want to be too comfortable in our sins, but This passage is showing us God already knew that we can't achieve righteousness on our own. That's why Jesus came. So perhaps the next time you feel crippling despair, when you look at all the ways that you have failed to love God, instead of being hard on yourself, look instead to Jesus with thankfulness because He did what you needed to do but couldn't. So to sum it up, Mark shows us that we can trust, we can rest in this Jesus who is the Christ. This Jesus came in fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament. He is the suffering servant who comes to please God through his obedience. He is the reason that people can hear this great message of comfort. And ultimately, he is the one who allows those who repent and turn to God to be truly forgiven, to be enabled by the Holy Spirit, to be God's people, flawed as they may be. And that, my friends, is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this message of good news. Thank you that Jesus came in fulfillment of all the prophecies of Scripture. And Lord, help us to put our trust in Him, to live our lives in that faith. May our lives reflect our trust. And for those of us who do not know Jesus, Lord, help them to see who Christ is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.